Hi, I'm Peter Leonard, and uh, my new book is Raylan Goes to Detroit. And hi, I'm Max Mobley, uh, the author of Howard and Debbie, published by Rare Bird Books, uh, and excited to talk to Peter about writing and books and stuff like that. So, Max, uh, this is your first novel? This is my first novel. It's my fourth book. Uh, prior to that, I was in the world of nonfiction because, you know, it's just easier to get work that way, to be honest. Um, I actually wrote the first draft of Howard and Debbie uh, almost a decade ago, but it's been, you know how it goes. It, it's nothing like what it was 10 years ago. is nothing like what it is today uh, in print. But, yeah, it is my first novel. Well, it's excellent. Boy, you, you're a good writer. You are really good. And uh, it's, it's amazing that it's your first novel, I think. Wow. Well, coming from you, Peter, uh, that means an awful lot. So thank you very much. Uh, I take the compliment to heart. It was not easy. Uh, as you know, it's a, it's a, you know, the times of story is probably not super easy to read. It's kind of dark in places. Um, but, you know, I, I learning from people, you know, like, the like your father i'll be honest and others you know you got to be true to the story you got to be true to the characters and at all and i just made sure i did that to the best of my abilities i particularly liked your uh, characters names uh howard feck debbie coom teddy eel i think is my favorite name that's it's just so great uh elma sears dr maddie and uh Jam and Dave, the Jam Man. I mean, those are good. They're really good. And uh, you have uh, an ability to bring characters to life with simple descriptions and dialogue, which is pretty amazing. Uh, I was thinking about uh, the scenes with Teddy Eel. Uh, I could almost smell his body odor and rancid breath. <laughs> Uh, thank you so much. Yeah, um, you know, I, I'm a musician and I've written songs and played in bands for years longer than I've been writing and uh and I like so there's a certain rhythm I kind of look for in a name but I also like names that are sort of have a sort of staccato element to them like Teddy Eel does um even Dr. Maddie has that and and Howard Feck uh has that I also like names that are sort of like with Debbie Coombe, it's like a name that you would just, if you ever saw that name on a list, you would scan right by it and never think twice about that person. <laughs> You're right, yes. Uh, and yet, you know, she's a powerhouse. So I, I, those, those are the kinds of things that, that, drive, uh, that drive, you know, the naming uh, of people. And, and there's also sort of a bit of a, uh, like with the coroner and stuff, there's a, a bit of almost like a graphic novel sense where these characters are almost... I don't want to say comic book, but um, but their names kind of kind of reflect a little bit of, of who they are. Yeah, without question. And I I uh, I also love the uh, rock references. Uh, uh, the uh, you mentioned a number of bands, uh, ACDC and uh, the Rolling Stones and uh, and others, and, uh, and and you know I just kind of got a kick out of it. Uh, nice. Well, thank you. And you know, my background in nonfiction it was all in music industry stuff. I was, you know, I written for, a, I wrote for a magazine called Crawdaddy, which is actually older than Rolling Stone. I was a columnist for them, and and uh, I wrote a book on the band Rush, and and I actually probably had, I think, at one point, a couple Rush lyrics in there, and and pulled them out uh, because you know, again, I, I, I it was one of those things where am I putting this in there because I like putting it in there, or is this really serving? you know, the, the story. And also are there any, am I going to run into any sort of copyright snafus or, or any weird stuff like that? So, um, 
So there was probably more in the first draft than was in the final draft. But yeah, my music background definitely, definitely comes out. Yeah, I can see it. I uh, wanted just a, just a quick aside. I uh, I was staying at the uh, this Rockefeller uh, hunting lodge in upstate New York on uh, Saranac Lake. My wife and I were there, and uh, after dinner one night, uh, we went to the bar, and uh, I met Getty Lee and his wife, and uh, so he's the only uh, rock star I've ever met. Wow. Uh, and, and, you know, rock star, I think some people would maybe disagree with you. I certainly wouldn't. I think that's pretty amazing. Uh, I bet you they were in the middle of recording an album during that time because one of their last studio albums was recorded in upstate New York. Um, so, and they also, I know, I think they, there was a time where they did a, a warm up for a tour. They were practicing up there. So did, did you, so how did you meet him? I, I know we're going to take the sidebar just a little further here. That did you, how does that go? Because, you know, I don't know if even I would go up and say something to him. Well, he, you know, I recognized him. And, you know, it was just, there were the four of us, my wife, his wife, me, Getty. And uh, so, you know, I just thought I'll introduce myself. And uh, and we chatted for a bit. I'm not saying we became best friends, but uh, it, was, it was fun to meet him. I bet. And I think, you know, given your background and your upbringing, I would imagine you probably know how to behave, for lack of a better term, and present yourself when you meet somebody like that, um, which probably made it a lot better for Getty and, 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 you know, everyone involved. Yeah. Getty, uh, seemed to be a very low key guy. Some friends of mine just met him. He's doing a book tour. He's got a book on bases that are, that's out sort of a coffee table book. And he's doing these writer events, um, you know, book signings basically where there's like six, 600 people showing up. It's just incredible. I'm like, I don't know what his poor hand is like after signing 600 books in a row. Yeah. Uh, but it's very, so it's very, you know, they're very structured. Like, Hey, you, you know, hand him, hand this person your book, he'll sign it. You have 10 seconds and you move on. But everyone was, was, uh, very down to earth. And, and, and I should say everyone spoke about how down to earth he was. Um, and it's amazing how these kinds of things, uh, can touch a fan, you know? So I don't know if you're a Rush fan or not, but I think it's great that you got to meet him in a casual environment and, and you know, share a drink with him or, or what have you. Um, so switching over, um, I mean, you did grow up in, in a, you know, the family of, of a literary giant, and obviously you've earned your own success in your own right uh, as an author. Uh, I mean, before you did the Raylan book, you were writing your own stuff. Um, so what was that, I have to ask, what was that like for you growing up in that environment? Well, uh, Elmore was, uh, a pretty down to earth guy and, uh, he never, he, he didn't seem to have much of an ego, uh, never blew his own horn. He was just my father. And, uh, and what I remember about him is that he was writing constantly that I, I remember going down the basement of our uh, first house and he'd be lost in con concentration, and he wouldn't even see me as an eight-year-old boy, you know, just standing there trying to trying to, to uh, get him to say hello. And and so it went. I mean, every everywhere we uh, uh, used to go on vacation, uh, Elmore would always be off to the side. You know, all the the parents would be. Uh, drinking vodka and tonics, smoking cigarettes, and he'd be off uh, by himself writing uh, on a, uh, a yellow, unlined legal pad. Really? Yeah. And, in fact, one of the uh, uh, kind of fun memories, I, I was watching a uh, 
Michigan football game and with two buddies. This was in early high school, and uh, we were listening to the uh, original Jimi Hendrix album. And uh, my father was 15 feet away, sitting at a table writing. Uh. And I said to him, "How how could you?" How can you write with this much going on? And he said, I didn't even notice it and ended up uh, uh, writing eight pages of Valdez's coming. So, yeah, remarkable, really. Really is. And so now that you're on the other side of the door, so to speak, when you you know becoming a writer, um, do you relate to to that, you know, that sort of hyper focus and, and that oblivion to the external environment as you're in the story? I sure try. Yeah, I, I'm not as good as uh, my father was, but uh, I, I treat it as a business. And uh, I get up in the morning, and uh, my commute is about 40 feet to my office. And uh, I write from uh, nine to five every day, and uh, you know, I take a little bit of a break for lunch, and uh, and it's really satisfying. It's it's really enjoyable, and uh, yeah. It's nice when you know this is what you're supposed to be doing and you have that what I call function lust, you know, where you're you're doing something and you love doing it. And I'm sure those hours probably pass by in like a snap or two. They do. And uh, it's it's amazing how fast the day goes. Uh, I was in the advertising business. I owned an ad agency uh, for you know, 29 years. And uh, so I wrote ads and made presentations and you know, really got tired of it, got tired of uh, writing about uh, Volkswagens and Audis and, and booze for Hiram Walker. And uh, so I wrote, I wrote two books uh, and, uh, and then left the, the uh, agency business and uh, came home. I've written uh, seven more since then and it's just it's great it's a, it's really fun to create your own world your own characters as you know yeah uh, I, I just was, was going to interrupt you there because your ad agency it wasn't just like oh i ran an ad agency you actually had some very sort of iconic successful campaigns isn't that right yes yeah like what the volkswagen one was it was it that one that was one of the bigger bigger ones that was indeed yes yeah and Volkswagen really demanded good work, and so it was. It was a pleasure. It was fun to uh, to create ideas for them. And so transitioning from from writing ad copy, and obviously you're writing for someone else, and you're writing for a specific message rather than telling a story. Uh, how was how did that help you or not help you? And what was that transition like from doing that to to writing the fiction you write? Well. Uh, it, it, I don't think it helped at all, uh, but uh, I, I remember uh, making a pitch to VW, a, a new ad campaign, and uh, the ad manager took the, the first storyboard and threw it across the conference room like a Frisbee, And uh, although they did end up buying uh, an idea. and uh, So I was frustrated, and on my way home, I stopped at my father's house, and uh, he was smoking a cigarette when he when he opened the door and uh, he was wearing a nine inch nails t-shirt <laughs> Levi's and uh, Birkenstocks and uh, he picked up a uh, piece of paper uh, unlined yellow paper and read me a couple scenes from his book The Hot Kid and I thought this guy loves what he's doing and I'm really bored. And so that was my epiphany. And, and a year later I had written a book and it sold and you know how that feels. It's, it's wonderful. 
Absolutely. And, and there's so much validation in there. I mean, you know, the hardest part is, is probably not writing the book, but, but going through the publishing process and rare birds has been so excellent and supportive. Uh, and obviously we're grateful for that. Um, so I, but I want to go back for a second. So when you were talking about growing up with a writer, although obviously your father, uh, Elmer Leonard, so you know what it's like on both sides of the door. I always thought, I only know what it's like to be the writer. So I always thought my family, I have a wife and a child, and I always thought it was great for them. They get the remote, they get the couch to themselves. You know, um, they, it's, I thought it was be easy for them. And it was kind of an epiphany for me to learn that being the family of a writer was actually not that easy that, you know, obviously there were a lot of things I missed. There were a lot of times I didn't want to be disturbed or couldn't be disturbed. And there were times when, you know, on a book like Howard and Debbie, I would come out in different emotional states depending on what I was working on. Maybe I'd be I'll super bet. happy, yeah. or maybe I'd be super sad and 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 depressed. What was it like for you growing on the other side of the door, on the on the fi- the family side of the door, not the writer side of the door? Well, uh, yeah, Elmore was busy. He was busy, and uh, so you know, we did miss him. I mean, he made an effort. Uh, uh, you know. My brothers and sisters and I all played sports, and I mean, he would miss games here and there, but he uh, he did his best. He was a, he was a good dad, fun good. dad. Yeah, and I was all, he's also very very prolific, so that's got to be you know its own thing too. Now now, how did that when you became the writer on the writer side of the door? Were you mindful of what your family's sacrifice was and and that kind of stuff, or how did that impact you? That part of it. Well, yeah, it it uh, it did impact me. Uh, you know, I missed events here and there, and uh, I remember writing the first book. And uh, while my kids, I have four kids, while three of them were in the living room with me, they were doing their homework, and I'm writing my first novel, and uh, and that was kind of fun as I think back. But uh, yeah, I had, particularly during my advertising days, I uh, where I wrote two books. I, you know, I. I wrote at night, I uh, wrote on weekends, and uh, you know, missed some stuff, missed some family things, but uh, I had to do it. I just had to you know, prove that I could do it. And, uh, yeah, I, I, I feel I can totally relate. When I wrote um, Howard and Debbie and when I wrote the Rush book, well, actually I wrote all the books, I was working in high tech, both either in the music industry and then eventually for Netflix. And, uh, you know, Silic- working in Silicon Valley, it is a 50-hour week. I don't care what anybody tells you. Um, and they want every minute. Of, and, of course, with your phone, you're attached so that every minute of the day they can reach out to you, and it's a global business. Um, and I was actually writing curriculum for them, which I found very exciting uh, and satisfying. Um, but uh, even though there's an immense amount of focus and dedication one needs to sustain to write a novel or, or a nonfiction book, um, in some ways, it was easier <laughs> than working in technology uh, and working for someone else, right? Right. No, I, I get that completely, yeah. yeah. The novel is yours. You're doing it, and uh, you're creating it. And uh, writing, you know, books uh, that, you, you know, that you'd written earlier, are. I mean, that's work. It's got to be work, just as writing ads is work. Yeah. And, you know, as with nonfiction, and I'm sure with that, too, there's just a lot of research. There's a lot of testing. It's a, it's a much more, you know, not clinical, but it's a much more sort of it's a work environment. And it's it's not solitary as solitary as, you know, writing fiction is when for me, at least I describe it. I'm just sort of 
you know, peering my head through this window where I'm into this other universe and I can see into other people's heads and I'm just trying to capture it all. Uh, it's an exhilarating experience, as you said, uh, but it is also very isolating. Um, so I, so real quick, you mentioned your, you said you, I think you, your writing schedule is like nine to five. Is that right? Yes. And so do you have a word count goal that you're after or it's just whatever you get that day is what you get? I mean, I, I try to write three pages a day and sometimes I'll write four and sometimes two. You know, having now written nine books, I, I'm not that concerned. I know that I'll, you know, yeah, get you to the, get the finish line at some point. <laughs> exactly. And and again, uh, I thought the Raylan book, Raylan Goes to Detroit, was so exciting. Uh, and this is the first and only book you've done that sort of has a tight connection to your father's work. Is that right? That's right. Yeah. And, uh, so, and, it, and it was a TV show, right? Justified. Is that in that? Yes, indeed. Six seasons. So so did that add pressure? I would imagine it would add pressure to what you were doing and taking on. No, you know, it didn't because uh, the writers of Justified kind of created, established a precedent that, uh, you know, someone else other than Elmore Leonard could uh, pick up uh, Raylan and put him in a story. And I had uh, read the the novels that uh, Raylan appeared in and uh, the short story Fire in the Hole that was the basis for Justified. And uh, I just thought, you know, it's a... It was really sort of a uh, natural thing to step into Raylan's boots and uh, use him as a character. I mean, I got to know him. I knew him, and and uh, it just you know I don't know. Everything seemed to work out. And and was that was there any sort of emotional element to it? Being you're carrying on the work of your father, you know, literally by a character. Not really. Um, you know, I'm not sure why, but uh, when my father died, he was writing a book called Blue Dreams, uh, which is the title is a from a, a marijuana strain. And uh, he'd written 85 pages. And uh, at his funeral, people came up to me and said, hey, uh, you're going to finish your dad's book. And uh, I hadn't even thought about it. But uh, and, and then I did think about it and uh, decided it was a bad idea. I, I, you know, I couldn't that that writing was sacred in some way. And so I thought uh, I'll, I'll try a Raylan book and as a sort of tribute. And, uh, you know, I think this is just a one off. I, I don't see myself uh, bringing Raylan back again. Interesting. And so, you know. It, it, Ray, the Raylan book, Raylan Goes to Detroit, has all the best elements of a great crime thriller that your father, if, if he didn't invent it, he certainly codified it and tightened it, which is that pacing on that crispness in dialogue and how much of the story is told through dialogue and that one sentence, uh, you know, everything's fine and then all hell breaks loose in one sentence uh, and then it can settle back down. But it, it's it's so crisp and so you know, Spartan, for lack of a better word. You don't have time to linger on much in a crime thriller, in my opinion. Uh, and I think I think your book does that really, really well. Uh, is that, how much of that is first draft and, and like, you know, your goal in writing the first draft or how much is it in the second draft when you're getting rid of all that stuff to keep it that crisp crime thriller kind of thing? Uh, well, I mean, writing is rewriting, as you know. <laughs> yes. And... Uh, yeah, I wrote the the first draft, and, and it's always a, a feeling of satisfaction after you write the first draft, and then 
you know, I typically give it a little time, a few weeks, and then I go back and say, oh, my God, you know, I've got to fix this and this. And, and that's just the way it is. And uh, my father told me that you could rewrite a book, a novel forever. Yeah. But you've got to just let it go at some point. Uh, true. I mean, it's in the same way with music, you know, uh, the song is always on, it's always being worked on until it gets recorded. And then that's the song. And I think with books is it, the, the book is continually being worked on until you, know, you get the copy edited version back from your publisher and you go, okay, now I'm just going to fix that. And, 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 and that's the book. Right. L- let me ask you, uh, what was, uh, where'd you get the idea for, uh, Howard and Debbie? What was the inspiration you know, the, uh, that's a great question. So the inspiration started, it, it evolved over time, but it started with, I, w- I was back in those days of Windows 98, uh, which we, you know, we were still kind of figuring out what the internet was, right, and, and what it had. And there was this whole thing about cyber sex and cyber romance and these chat rooms, which I cover in the book to a, to a degree. And I was working with different people in the technology industry who were doing what Howard basically was attempting to do in the story, which is, you know, meet someone under false pretenses, learn all about them, and then these people would go in real life, the the people I worked with, they would create a, they would make a date with the person they met online and had a relationship with. They would, since they used fake pictures, they would go there and just watch this person get stood up. They would never introduce themselves. And then they would, um, and then they had all this knowledge about the person. So then if they decided it was right or the, or they were attracted or whatever, then they would use that information to, to, you know, seduce or pick up on that person. And I found this really, really gross and disgusting. And especially these people were dragging, were bragging about it more than one. Um, and so I kind of wrote about that and I wanted to kind of, you know, my first novel, I had a lot to learn and I wanted to kind of put these people in their place. And as I started to write about that, um, Howard Feck, the protagonist in Howard and Debbie, he just sort of appeared and really changed the course of the story um, to what is in is in the book. So that was kind of how it started. That was good. I uh, I love the uh, Howard and, and uh, Debbie meeting these two broken down people. Yeah. And, uh, and it's uh, it's something. There's some really terrifying scenes that you wrote that are so good. I mean, really amazing and. The ending, you know, I just, I was on the edge of my seat. It was, it was really great. I couldn't, I couldn't stop reading. And I had to, you know, my wife would say to me, hey, we're having dinner. I'd say, hey, can't, give me a few minutes. And uh, so it went. But I love, too, the fact that you, you know, with all this uh, violence and horror, you undercut it with uh, humor. And uh, here, here I've got a couple examples. Um, You wrote, uh, the baby was screaming like a needle drop in the middle of an ACDC record. <laughs> yeah. You got to love that. Oh, thank you so much. Uh, your uh, description of baby Virginia. You say part baby jet engine, part smoke alarm with its test buttons stuck in the on position. You know, again, just really wonderful. Uh, that's awesome to hear. Yeah. I, and I, you know, I fully admit when I was, Writing this book, I think I had a my kid was maybe three years old, maybe a little older. So that and and although it was a my baby was a quiet baby, um, I I was you know spent enough time you know with the hospital and stuff. My baby was a little premature, so I was there more often than probably most parents. Uh, and I I kind of had a little inkling into what that was about. But I but having a baby only a few years ago, 
I think helped shape that part of, of the story. Uh, and you know, the, and the humor stuff, it comes natural. It's never like, I need to be funny here because I've written something dark back there or something. It was always just sort of what came out, you know, it was never mm -hmm. planned. Uh, you know, I think, uh, you know, you were writing omniscient author and, uh, it, it's entertaining. I don't, you know, I don't read omniscient author novels very often and, uh, and it was good. You, you certainly kept my attention, uh, for 342 pages. It was really well done. That's great. Yeah. It's, you know, and, and there, I do take, we, we do go places with this book and, and I do feel like there is, and I try to, to be restrained in it because I know it can be heavy handed and it can sometimes pull readers out of the story. And what I'm talking about is, is that sort of social commentary, which this gets into a little bit on, you know, female on male domestic violence, which is rarely talked about, but does occur. And, and of course, you know, uh, you know, sexual abuse and, and trafficking and those kinds of things. Um, you know, it was, it, it was not easy to write. It was painful, but I also knew I, like I said earlier, I, it, it was what happened and I had to be true to it. And I, and some of those darker scenes, um, some of the darker scenes got the most rewrites because I wanted to get it right. And I wanted to, and I think I was self-conscious about not wanting to come across salacious, even though that was never my intent. I think I might've just been a little almost paranoid. I don't want the reader to think I'm some weird guy, <laughs> you know, <laughs> writing these dark things. I uh, saw uh, Debbie as uh, a young Kathy Bates and, uh, and I think this this book should be made into a movie. Should be adapted. It's uh, it'd be a hell of a thriller. Uh, thank you so much. Yeah, that was you know one of the early taglines when I was shopping this around was you know imagine if Forrest Gump met Misery's Kathy Bates. <laughs> That's um, a contrast. Yeah, and, and it kind of is. And they and I, and I you know uh, and I think about Debbie as well in that regard. And I think that you know given sort of. And this is probably going to sound a little jaded. I don't mean it to be, but you know, she's an unattractive person. Uh, she's complex, but she's disturbing and unattractive. And I think that's sort of the Oscar nomination type of female role. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. and, you know, there's a, there's sort of a running joke. I mean, you're a lot closer to Hollywood than I am, but there's a running joke about if you want a woman to win an Oscar, have her get her a role where she's not wearing any makeup. <laughs> you're right. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and and yeah. and Debbie obviously obviously. Fits that, uh, so I'm I'm glad, and uh, so I I got to ask because it's curious to me. Were you glad, or I mean, I don't want to give anything away. So, were you satisfied with the ending, or not satisfied with the ending? I don't want to spoil anything, but was I was, it? Were you uh, I was satisfied with the ending. I thought the ending, you know, I it had to end that way. I think. Yeah, I, I think so too. Um, I, I I think and the reason I ask and I've been sensitive to it is because some. You know, you have you have those you know what you call your ideal readers or whatever you call them, those people that you share your drafts with, and and I think about half were were like, no, you can't do that. I'm like, but it's the story. I don't have a choice. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think it's it's a satisfying ending. And uh, had you, you know, I don't want to give anything away here, but you know, if you changed it, if if the uh, if Debbie was, uh, you know, made out, she was the. Uh, I think it would have been disappointing. Yeah, 
uh, or, or like it would have felt like I was pulling punches or I don't know what, you know what I mean? It would have felt yeah. like I wasn't being true. In, in my mind, I felt like I, cause I knew I wouldn't, be, I wouldn't have been true to the story. Uh, so I know we only got a few minutes left, but I want to ask you, cause for this Raylan book, you spent time with us marshals. Um, I would love to hear about that. But my first part about that, I want to know is, so does one just call up and say, hi, I want to hang out with you guys. Cause I'm writing a book or, I mean, you obviously have some credibility with your name, but, and having nine books out, but, how, how does that work, and where did it go? Well, uh, my father's researcher uh, contacted the U.S. Marshal Service in Washington and uh, got permission for me to uh, hang out in San Diego. So I was there first for a few days, and uh, then I got permission to uh, hang out with the, the U.S. Marshal's Fugitive Task Force in Detroit. And uh, that was a real eye-opener. I spent a week with them. And, uh, you know, essentially we, I would wear a, a bulletproof vest, the only time I've ever worn a vest, you know, to work. And uh, and I, I would ride with different people. The, f- the first day uh, was a young female who was 26, and uh, she was the, the only girl on this alpha male task force. And so it was fun to watch her interact with with the tough guys and she was good held her own and then i was with a uh, a guy who is really the ass kicker of the the task force and uh i would just go with him and he would tell me stuff uh, okay we're going to go find this guy who is a uh fugitive bank robber he was just released and um he's uh, robbed two liquor stores and he uh uh carjacked a pregnant woman and uh so the, all the marshals are looking for this guy, and uh, he's back on the uh, on the rock. So he's he's doing drugs, and uh, he's he's hurting people, and he ends up uh, murdering a guy in a uh, at a bank. Uh, and uh, I mean that that was what it was like. I mean he was eventually caught, but uh, it was it was exciting. I couldn't wait to get to. Uh, work in the morning. I mean, it was really something. Wow. And so, uh, I mean, you must have been frightened at times. I'm sure you weren't armed. It was just stay the heck out of the way and keep down or something, right? Well, I was always out of the fray. You know, I'd be, I'd have to wait in a car uh-huh. or whatever. But uh, one time, so I'm with this guy, uh, Ponch, he, his nickname, he's the ass kicker. And uh, we're on the freeway and this guy is, uh, he's on the phone, he's driving and he's looking at a, a computer laptop on a metal stand that's bolted to the floor. And his car keeps drifting in and out of the lane. And uh, I hear a, a, a car horn behind us. Some guy aggressively blowing the horn, then comes up on the driver's side of the car. And uh, he's looking at us and uh, puts his hand through the sunroof and gives us the finger. And I said to Ponch, are you going to put up with that? Are you going to take that? And there's he's Ponch has a um, Remington... Uh, 870 pump action shotgun on the back seat and an AR-15. And so this guy, you know, he had no idea, obviously. But uh, so Paz said to me, it's his lucky day. He should uh, he should play the horses. He should go to the casino. <laughs> he should buy a lottery ticket. So, funny, that's that's like that. kind of the story, right? Yeah, it just made it. That's almost more fun, I think, than the, you know, going after fugitives. Yeah, but did that anecdote, a version of that kind of made it into the story, right? Um, I think so, yeah. Yeah, and yeah. so 
and, and you mentioned the female U.S. Marshal. Was she? Did, did she help inspire or shape your your creation of Nora, the FBI agent in your book? No, as a matter of fact, uh, she uh, helped me uh, with the uh, a novel that I just finished called Sweet Dreams, and uh, so I based the the main character on her, and uh, it was you know it was kind of fun. Wow! Big contrast between Sully was her name and uh, you know the males. And did you have your characters and sort of an outline, or, or how or how much did you have of Raylan goes to Detroit in your mind at least before you went on these uh, rides or whatever? I didn't have much. The research kind of shaped where I was headed, and uh, and stories that I heard from the marshals, both in San Diego and uh, Detroit and El Centro, California, which is about eight miles from the Mexican border. I was there for a few days too. So yeah. I just listened to the guys talk, write notes, and uh, and then went home and uh, started to you know plot the story. Gotcha. And uh, and I yeah, I've been to El Centro, and uh, so I it it brought that home to me. I believe it or not, worked there for two weeks when I was in college. Um, so so in your in 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 the Raylan book, um, there is sort of a. I don't want to say it's an ongoing theme, but there's an element where you're pairing these, you know, like, like Raylan, who's a veteran marshal who knows what the heck he's doing with very junior and experienced people or people that there's maybe not a lot of trust with because they're in a different agency like the FBI. Uh, was that something that you saw on your, in your time with the marshals? Yeah, that was a uh, recurring theme. And I, I noticed it first in San Diego, uh, one of the marshals said to me, yeah, the, the FBI, you know, they don't really know what they're doing when it comes to manhunting. And, uh, but they, uh, they want to take their bean and put it in their pot and, uh, they want credit. In other words, you know, yeah. they don't have to be involved in the bus, but they want credit for it and, uh, or equal credit. The same thing uh, was true in Detroit, that these two federal agencies were, were bumping heads. And, uh, so I thought, well, you know, use a, get a female, a good looking female to bump heads with Raylan. And that, you know, that sort of, it took off, I think, you know, made the story interesting. That was part of the story. It, no, I think it was. I think it added an extra element of sort of the motivation of what's going on with both the FBI kind of wanting that credit and also the Tucson police. You know, everybody, everybody who kind of goes through all the different agencies that, that, that your bad guys are chased through, um, States all sort of wanted. They all look at it as wanting that sort of feather in their cap, or or they want to be part of the of the of the bust to get credit of, at some level. Yeah, definitely. Let me ask you: uh, Are you writing a new book? I am working on a new book. I actually just finished the first draft. Um, it's so so early. I'm, I'm not much to talk about it much. It's a very different book, uh, but it is it, it's heavy and it's funny, um, and it's kind of a of a much more grand story or theme than Howard Debbie, which is a much more, you know, personal and isolated kind of thing. Mm -hmm. uh, so I'm, I'm actually literally going after that, after this, I'm going to eat lunch. And then I start on draft two this afternoon. Do you have a title? I have a title. Uh, and it's a weird title, but I'll say it. It's Primaril, which is like primary with the word L at the end. Mm -hmm. uh, and Right, and I, I, I got. I want to say so much about it. I'd love to talk to you offline about it too. But I just got a whole. I'm, I'm a believer in sort of holding my fire, meaning containing my fire, and putting all that energy toward the story. Definitely, yeah, exactly. Yeah. I'm sure you know that feeling. Sure. 
Yeah. Uh, okay, real quick, I know we're over time, but I wanted to ask you, your bad guys are so colorful and rich, and you got great names too, Mr. Boy, who's this, you know, I don't want to give too much away either, but Mr. Boy, who's this giant person, and, and Thunderbird, and, and Diaz. Uh, were any of those inspired by your time with the U.S. Marshals, or were those just part of you being a writer? Uh, those were more inspired by uh, hanging out with uh, Detroit Police Homicide, which okay. I, did, I did for a month. And uh, I would go there every day at four. And uh, so my shift was four to midnight. And uh, it was unbelievable, the things I saw, the things I heard. I mean, the 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 murders, the suicides, the, I mean, it's just gruesome stuff. And yet I felt like, you know, I don't know, it wasn't real in some way and that I was, this was TV. And so it, maybe I did that as a defense mechanism. I don't know, but uh, fascinating, incredible. I bet, especially being in Detroit, which as we know is a city that's been going through some hard times. Well, you're a very brave man, a very brave author, and I love your work. Uh, it was such a joy to read, and I, uh, it makes me want to go back. I'm going to be exploring your back catalog now because uh, this is a sort of an area I don't spend enough time in. So, And I'm sure your other books are probably quite different based on the titles, at least. And, yes, yeah, uh, definitely. Also, yeah. Yep. Great talking to you, Max, and uh, I'll be looking for your new one.